with us to pray for revival. Uh, if you've watched the news, you would agree with me that it's needed. Uh, it, but we are in the book of Luke in our study, so if you turn with me to Luke chapter 8, uh, a very appropriate text uh, for not only uh, the video that we saw, but also uh, just for the times in which we live. Of course, this passage, well, all passages stand the test of eternal time, but, but this one, uh, I believe, is particularly noteworthy in a number of respects, and we'll look at that this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of the ushers will get you a Bible. If you didn't come with a Bible, uh, we're glad to furnish you with one. If you take it home, we won't even care. Uh, we'll actually be glad, especially if you read it. Uh, but Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Um, how many of you have ever heard the parable of the sower? Yeah, even the went to Sunday school a few times, that probably came up. This is one of the most well-known uh, passages, uh, but it's probably one that we don't talk about enough and that we don't revisit often enough, but it's very, very critical to our understanding of uh, spiritual matters. Starting with uh, verse 1, uh, Luke chapter 8, now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he had uh, cast out seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on hard rock. As soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it has been given parables that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear when the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Now the ones that fell upon the thorns are those, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And Father, we ask for the ministry and the illumination and and Lord, just the presence of your Holy Spirit speaking to each and every heart. May I not be heard at all, but may you and you alone be heard and understood and believed and followed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This parable, as I mentioned just briefly before reading the text, is without question one of the most powerful in all of Scripture. It's a simple parable, but it's profound. 
Everything Jesus says is profound, isn't it? But though it's simplistic, it's profound, and it sheds light on the entire New Testament. This parable sheds light on the entire New Testament. It sheds light on evangelism. It sheds light on discipleship. It sheds light on spiritual growth. It sheds light on the work of the Spirit. It sheds light on apostasy. It sheds light on backsliding and much more. This parable speaks to all those and others that we just don't have time to cover today. Now, there are eight parables that are found in each of the synoptic or the parallel gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, eight of them that are found in all three of the synoptic gospels. And this one is, of course, one of them. It's found in all three. Some Bible teachers even refer to, in Mark's gospel, where this is mentioned, Jesus makes this statement in Mark chapter 4, verse 13. He said, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? Some don't believe that Jesus is making the statement that this parable is the key to all the other parables. Some just say, if you can't understand, Jesus is saying, well, if you don't understand a parable, how will you understand parables? Uh, Or... He could, in fact, be meaning exactly what it says. Uh, This parable is actually key to understand the others. And there is validity to that viewpoint. Uh, It's not a wrong viewpoint either way, even if you look at it just that Jesus is speaking of, hey, if you don't understand parables, you're going to have a hard time with parables. But if he's speaking that this parable is actually really key to understanding the other parables, that has validity too. And the reason why is all the other parables, if you look at them, they all deal with something that is either fake and phony versus authentic, right? They deal with something that is the real, genuine disciple of Christ versus someone who is probably not. And so Jesus is saying the parables themselves are always going to shed light. uh, Now, there are some parables that that's not the express uh, uh, definition of the parable, but certainly we see in all the parables a contrast of that which is godly and that which is ungodly. And usually, uh, there's even uh, in both of them uh, what would be kind of a true conversion versus a false conversion, authentic versus non-authentic. We see that throughout. But if you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, uh, Sown in Good Ground. Sown in Good Ground. And we'll look at three things in the text this morning. Uh, The first three verses, the provisions... Uh, then the parable, and then lastly, the produce, Uh, the provisions, the parable, and the produce. Uh, Looking at these first three verses, if you're taking notes under the provisions, um, Jesus, it says, now it came to pass afterward, he went through every city and village. Now, he didn't go to every city in the world, every city and village in the world, but he went to every city in that specific region and area. But I think it's a reminder, Luke is a very detailed man, as we've talked about in previous studies. I think it's a reminder to us, Luke's saying that he went to every city and every village. Now, Jesus came to the household of Israel that they would hear, and then later the apostles would then take whatever Jesus did in the household of Israel, where would they take it? To the uttermost parts of the world. But it's a a picture, I believe, as well. Not only does he hit every city and village in the area, But it's a reminder to us that he cares for every city, every family, every individual, every single person. 
Uh, he really desires that the body of Christ, that we would take the gospel to every city in the United States, every village in the United States, or little town, or what have you, but also to the other mar- most parts of the world. That's why we're involved with new tribes. That's why we're involved with Word of Messiah. That's why we're involved with Gospel for Asia, because we want to see the gospel go to the most remote areas, even places you may never go to. Our brothers and sisters can get there, and we can help them get there, and we must help them get there. But Jesus cares for every city, every family, every person. Uh, certainly in this area, he demonstrated that. It was a demonstration. We're to follow in his footsteps. That's why he said to go into all the world. Uh, we know that he said in John chapter 3, when he talked to Nicodemus, he said, for God so loved the world. John three sixteen, The world, every village, every place. And as Jesus goes... It tells us that he's preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. As he goes, he's bringing the gospel. He's bringing it, and he's giving it. And he's also giving the understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about this before, as this this term has been mentioned already, the kingdom of God. Now, by way of review, the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, it's the good news. But the good news about what? The good news about what? Well, the good news, he says, uh, he even says in verse uh, 12 uh, of the parable, jumping ahead for just a second, lest they should believe and be saved. Saved from what? Well, everyone is born with the curse of sin and the curse of death, and everyone will spend eternity separated from God unless he sends a way of salvation. True? Every single person is lost and without hope unless he sends, God himself sends someone to take the penalty of sin, someone who can bring salvation. And Paul says in Romans 1.18, speaking of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus himself, according to Luke 4.18, is the one that sets men free, Right? So this is the glad tidings. You are lost, you are in bondage, you are all on your way to hell. Listen to me, follow me, believe in me, and this is good news indeed. True? It's good news if you're, tra- if you're, trapped, in a, uh, if you're trapped in a house and it's on fire, and every single exit door is now blocked by a wall of like 30-foot flames, and there's no way out, but your cell phone still works, and you call the 911 operator, and the 911 operator says, you can't see it, but the firemen have just entered the building, and we're told you should be out of there in the next 30 seconds. That would be good news, wouldn't it? That would be very good news. That's happened many times. People couldn't see the firemen coming. They didn't know they were there because they, all they hear is crackling and, 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 and inferno, and someone grabs them and carries them out. If someone doesn't carry them out, there is no salvation. They're, they're not saved from the fire. Jesus has done that millions and millions and millions of times. He's carried people right out of the flames to safety with his death. This is the good news that he's bringing. But he's also bringing the knowledge or the understanding of the kingdom of God. What is that? Well, go back to that same John chapter 3 conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, where Jesus coins the term, ye must be what? Born 
again. And why does he say that? Because he says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So he says not only am I the Savior or the Messiah, Emmanuel, the one that actually brings salvation to a world that's on its way to hell, but I change you from the inside out. You are reborn. And when you're reborn, the spirit of my heavenly father resides in you. You can then spend eternity with my heavenly father. No man comes unto the father but by me. The kingdom of God, he's like, I hold the key to the kingdom. So he's telling, wherever he goes, every village, he tells everybody two things. I'm the Messiah and I hold the key to the kingdom of God. He's bringing glad tidings. He's bringing good news. And the true truth, that was a term I first heard when I was first saved. I'll never forget. The true truth, because there are a lot of things that are true. It's true that stop signs are red. But that's not all that important in eternity, right? It's important if you don't want a ticket. But it's not all that important in eternity. But true truths, the truths that Jesus brought, that after death, our souls... Here's a true truth that Jesus would explain to people. After death, your soul will continue to live somewhere, but only one of two places. You can either live eternally at peace with God or eternally in punishment and torment with Satan and his demonic horde of fallen angels. That doesn't seem like a... That seems like an easy choice to me. But you have to believe that report first, right? You have to believe that Jesus, what he's tell, telling you the truth. Because how many of you have already gone to the afterlife? None of us. So we either have to believe God who says there is an afterlife, and you go to one of two places, or you can say, I don't believe that. You can believe the rabbi or the teacher or the Messiah or Emmanuel that's coming to your village, or you can say, I don't believe it. Most of those that Jesus encountered in this time. He goes to these villages, and you see in verses 2 and 3, uh, th these women here, and we'll get to them in just a second, but uh, most of those that Jesus encountered in these villages and these towns, uh, they were not living the prototypical American dream. You understand that, right? Everybody understands. They were not living, the vast majority of people that Jesus met were not living the prototypical American dream. If you're dissatisfied with your two-bedroom apartment, they would have thought you live in a mansion. That's the facts of the, the time period for the most of the people that Jesus ran into. Uh, death and disease. Think about the days in which Jesus lived. Death and disease were rampant all over the place. Death and disease were... There were not hospitals. There was not a Bon Secours on your corner. Johnston Willis over here. They didn't have all that stuff. Disease was rampant. That's why so many said thousands would come to Jesus with disease. Multitudes would come to him with diseases. Clubbed feet, broken arms that had never been healed right. None of that stuff. Their insurance card, they never heard of an insurance card. All of this stuff, disease was rampant. The average life expectancy in the Roman Empire was 45 to 47 years of age. And that was if that was taken into account, it was actually lower than that if you take the infant mortality rate. But if you made it to the age of 15, you could expect to live between 45 and 47 across the Roman Empire. Now, here's something kind of cool, though, probably, and uh, there's plenty of evidence to support this. Many Jewish families lived considerably longer in that area because of their diet, 
and they wash their hands a lot due to ceremonial cleaning. We know this to be, Josephus talks about a number of families that lived into their hundreds, but for the most part, uh, because of disease and all the other things, it was, uh, it was very much uh, unexpected to kind of have the life expectancies that we see. Even if you avoided the common diseases of the day or the injuries that could make you sick and keep you out of work, if you avoided these things, the average, the average peasant or laborer in the time of Jesus made enough money daily just to barely survive. The average person was in that kind of labor category. They made just enough to barely survive. You remember from last week's study, we talked about a, a, a denarius, right? A denarius worth, worth a day's wage. Worth a day's wage. Some estimates have the labor and working class diets were about 1,400 calories a day. That's what they were getting, most people, about 1,400 calories a day. And, of course, they worked more than eight hours a day. And on top of this, they were doing manual labor, which burns far more calories. You and I have to work out to make sure we burn off calories. True? We have to make sure we fit in working out so we can burn off 1,400 calories. They didn't have that issue. The issue was, would I get enough calories to survive an 11-hour workday in the sun in the heat. These are the people that Jesus encountered. He was not encountering people that were rolling up and, well, all I got is a Honda Accord. That's not generally what he was running into. Everyone, on top of all this, everyone was under the rule of Rome. A lovely empire to be under. Freedom of movement and liberty, these were foreign concepts. The liberties that we have, they would not even fathom. Everyone was under the Roman rule to be an eyewitness of a crucifixion. Can you imagine eyewitnessing a crucifixion? To be an eyewitness of a crucifixion, a stoning, a public beating under either Roman government or Jewish religious government, because they authorized some of these as well, particularly the stonings as well as the floggings or some other means of government authority and cruelty, this would have been normative for everyone in society to see these kind of things. I have never ridden down Hall Street and to my right side is a crucifixion. Just right there. These are the kind of, this is the life that these people knew that Jesus was, he came into a dark world, folks. Do you understand that? He came into a dark, that's why I said he, came, he was a light shining in the darkness. It was really dark. Satan wants to bring that kind of darkness back to the whole planet. It's happening right now all over the Middle East, by the way. Some of the atrocities are going, it looks just like ancient times. It's, it, he wants to bring it all back. But most of these people, they were poor. Their life was miserable. It was hard. It was a sad life. They had no hope of heaven. They had no hope of anything. Until Jesus came along. You've got to go hear this guy speak. He says, we can, he says we can be set free from this hell on earth. He says we can be set free from the future hell to come. And for many of them, if, if hell was going to be bad, they really knew it would be bad because earth was bad enough. Amen? Earth was hard, diseased, under 
cruelty, poor, starving, 1,400 calories a day. This was the norm of the people in his day. And when Jesus comes along and tells them, I can set you free, that's glad tidings, isn't it? That's glad tidings. If he says, I will take you to my home and you'll never suffer these things again, that's glad tidings. The people throng to hear him speak. The poor, the sick, the demonically possessed, they knew very well They knew very, very well they lived in a fallen world, and the fallen world was falling on them. They knew it. They felt the weight of the world. Percentage-wise, the rich, the affluent, the well-to-do were a very small minority. Less than 10 or less percent of the area was rich, well-to-do, affluent. Um, I know that by the American standards, most of you are not the rich, well-to-do, affluent. But compared to ancient standards, everyone here is rich, well-to-do, and affluent. We are. Compared to the ancient world, compared to almost all other times in history, uh, up until most recent history, we would all classify, they would not fathom our lives. You mean you do that with a light switch and what? That's how... Where's your lamps? Where where are you doing... Where's your your fire starter? I don't have any of that stuff. You... What are, you, what are you driving? Where's your oxen? Where, who's removing a manure and all that? We don't have any of that. It's just a different time. But the rich and affluent, according to Jesus' own ministry and his own testimony, those folks were far less attracted to his message and to him. He said himself in Matthew 19, 24, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. He said most of the folks that are living the well, the good life, don't want anything to do with me or my message. He would go on to say uh, that, thankfully, in, in the 26th verse, that uh, What's impossible with men is possible with God. Because even the disciples said, well, who could possibly be saved? And by the way, Jesus did save some rich folks in his ministry too, right? Nicodemus was one. Joseph of Arimathea was another. So he can and does penetrate the hearts of even those that are not experiencing hell on earth, that are not experiencing a miserable life. He can, but he said it's much harder for them to hear. Their ears are full of a lot more wax. Because... They can't see past the pleasures that they're enjoying. That's why Felix, Agrippa, right? Herod Antipas, even when John the Baptist was in front of them, they could hear and almost be convinced that they couldn't let go of the toys. They were living the good life. They produced nothing. It was all produced on the backs of people, but they had much. And when Jesus came to these crowds, though, they were listening to his every word. Could we be set free from here? But we see here for the first three verses, I also want to bring attention, again, if you're taking notes, I've titled our uh, uh, time in God's Word, Sown in Good Ground. We actually see some of the good ground right here at the beginning. The good ground is actually visible even before the parable. Why do I say that? Well, it says that the 12 were with him and certain women. 
these were ones that had already been transformed by the Lord. They had already been the good ground that received the message. They had already been transformed. Uh, he's about to tell the parable of the sower. But Luke records that these 12 and these certain women, they were with him. And it tells us a little bit about, we know that the disciples, we know some of the things they were delivered from. You know, Matthew, he was a hated tax collector. He didn't have a lot of friends. Jesus made him a friend, brought him in. Peter and them, they were hardworking fishermen, but they actually forsook all to follow. Peter and Andrew, they came along with the Lord. But these women, noticed the, notice the wonderful, uh, happy life they had before Christ. They had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary Magdalene, she had seven demons in her. This was their life before Christ. They were in darkness. They were in bondage. And Jesus had come. And yet he found in those lives good fertile ground. And they had been changed. They had been transformed. And notice also if, uh, under this uh, first bullet of provisions, we know that Jesus is the provider. He provided for them a new life. He provided for them salvation. He provided for them the way to heaven. He provided for them the counsel and wisdom of their lives now. That Peter, Andrew, John, you may have had earthly fathers, but now Jesus is their heavenly father. But notice their response back. They give their provisions back to who? Back to him. The women. It says in certain women, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Isn't that great? Herod's steward's wife. Jesus planted one of his believers on the inside. Isn't that great? He's got one right near Herod now. Herod's steward, the steward that would have been in charge of a lot of the affairs of his, of his palace and, uh, and, and perhaps money and everything else, his wife comes to Christ. By the way, she's probably one of the smaller percentage. She's not one of the suffering as far as economically. She would have been in the, the place that everyone would like to be. A good place. But she joins most of the down and outers with salvation. It reminds me uh, when you know, William Booth tells the story of a doctor over in London who had just you know, gotten saved and he saw all these poor huddled people that were also born again part of the Salvation Army and he was coming out of a, a beautiful Christmas dinner and he was wearing, you know, like they did the top hats and all that stuff and he comes out and he sees his brothers and sisters that are uh, uh, most of them destitute and poor and they're over there huddled around singing like Christmas carols or something and he turns to the dinner party group and he says, I must leave and join my family. And he goes over there with the, that's generally the ones that Jesus reached. And these women were that way. But what they did have, once they began to be uh, productive and, and whatever it is the Lord uh, allowed them to do is vocationally, they started to earn some amount of money. Of course, uh, uh, we know Joanna would have had money. But they would give money to Jesus for the sustaining of his ministry. And by the way, this is kind of an interesting thing. Over my years of being saved, I have found that men and women, women are far more generally speaking, out of the gate when they get saved, far more freely giving of the wallet than men. The women, it says certain women here, 
certain women, they provided for him from their sustenance or their substance. They would give to the Lord. This will help you get to the next village. This is for food to buy. This is for this. And we know Lydia did the same thing with Paul's ministry. She supported much of Paul's ministry. Uh, men, we should be leaders in giving, not followers. Now, this is no disrespect to the disciples because they were great givers. We know that Peter left everything, his fishing business, to follow Jesus. Men are great givers too when God gets a hold of the heart. It takes faith. Abraham that kind of had that kind of faith. He said, we're going to a land I don't know. Well, what are we going to do for a living? God said, go. How are we going to support Jesus if we can't support ourselves? I love that this, when we gave to the love offering, that we laid aside the needs of this church. Yeah, we have needs in this church, but we laid aside our needs for those of you that gave to these uh, you know, missionaries around the world. You laid aside your own needs for them, and Jesus is well pleased with that whether you're a woman or a man. But it's a great testimony of these women, their faith. Let's look at the parable, though. That's an important thing we want to take a look at. This parable, that he has the, he has the multitude there uh, in verse 4. A great multitude is now gathered. Uh, he's come through all these cities, and he comes to some open place, and then a multitude comes and wants to hear more. He's gone to these villages. Uh, he's had the 12 with him. These women are helped funding this little missionary journey, if you will. And he comes to this uh, open area, and all of these multitudes from all these different cities, they gather, and this is the parable, if you're taking notes, that he gives. The parable of the sower. This, uh, this sower who has seed, kind of a, a bag strapped over, the seeds are in the bag, and just taking handfuls and tossing it in all... In, in both directions to make sure it lays throughout all the field, up and down the rows, casting the seed. Uh, they didn't have like John Deere's and stuff like that. So you had to, this is the kind of stuff that you were doing, casting the seed and making sure that you covered the whole field. In cities around the area, there were larger cities. There were cities like Jerusalem, Tiberias, Sephoris, larger cities that were more commercial, more you know, hustle and bustle. But the villages that Jesus visited, the vast majority of them were agrarian in nature. Uh, they were craft-supported. When I say craft-supported, I'm speaking of things like fishing, rock quarrying, things like that. That's not farming, but a craft of some type. Uh, anyone traveling from place to place, if you travel from village to village, you would see the numerous farming fields. You'd see all the agriculture, uh, whether it be wheat or barley or orchards or vineyards. You would see all these different types of agriculture. If you go to Israel, we were in Israel. It's even amazing because God has made it flourish even more now than, than it did in those times. You see all these things everywhere, grain fields, fruit lemons, all this stuff. And so it's just amazing to see all the agriculture. But Jesus gives an illustration that's very familiar to his audience. They had seen many times, or many of them themselves, had uh, sown wheat or barley for harvest, something. They had planted things themselves. They were used to that uh, concept. They were always around the agriculture. But he says these seeds that are being tossed are falling on four types of surfaces. Only four. He says all the seeds, if you look around you, they're going to fall on four types of surfaces, speaking to the audience. 
And we know what the four surfaces are. The four surfaces, one is to fall by the wayside. One is to fall on rock where there's little cracks in the rock. There are amazing things about rocks. You ever, you ever, or you're sitting at traffic and you look over and there's a crack in the concrete. And there's a flower there growing out of the crack. You're like, I can't get that flower to grow when I've tried. And there it is in a crack of concrete growing. But it may not have a long life there depending on the kind of plant that it is. It can spring up. And then he says there's the ones that are thorns, all kinds of weeds and poison ivy and everything else, but something else can grow there. And then lastly is a nice place of good soil. Doesn't have rocks, doesn't have thorns, it's not on the wayside being trampled by people's feet. And he gives this illustration of these four surface types, and people uh, would understand them, uh, even in our own country, even though you know, may not live in Israel or in ancient times, you don't have to drive that far. Just drive out into Palatine, Amelia, Goochland, you'll see the farms. If you know where you're going, you'll run into riches somewhere out there in Amelia. And you'll see patches of weeds and thorns and thickets. And if you don't, go, if you don't have them in your own yard, uh, just leave your yard alone for a year and you'll have plenty, right? Just do nothing with it and it'll be thorns and thickets and everything and no time flat. They will take over anything. See people abandon a house, weeds come up out of nowhere. But the point was clear. The seed falls in a number of different places, but it only flourishes in one place. The point was clear to every. The seed falls in a lot of places, but it only flourishes in one. But I think it's interesting for us to note that a seed really only takes root when it dies, starts to kind of goes it goes deep into the ground and actually starts to go through that metamorphosis of decay. It dies, and then after being buried under the ground it begins to later bring forth life. See, half alive and half, a, half above ground seeds won't do anything like those that fully die. And Jesus made this point also. There was a missionary, James Calvert, uh, and he was a missionary that was sent to the cannibals of the Fiji Island. How many of you were like, I want to go reach the cannibals? And the ship captain, true story, the ship captain tried to turn him back, and he said, you will lose your life, and you're going to lose the lives of those that go with you among such savages. And James Calvert replied and said, we died before we came here. We died before we came here. And Jesus said in John 12, 24, most assuredly, most assuredly, no equivocation, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus said the, the seed has to go fully in and fully die. When it goes fully in and fully dies, much grain will come forth. But I'm partially dead to the old man. I keep half of my unsaved life alive. Jesus said, no, no, fully in the grave, and then it'll produce. Romans 6, 3. 
Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It's the death that brings the newness of life. Did you hear that that Paul's writing in Romans chapter 6? It's the death that brings the newness of life. It's the death in the ground. Now, they didn't get all that. First of all, Romans hasn't been written yet, and John hasn't written John yet. Although Jesus speaks to some of the same audiences, John writes about different things in the other three synaptic gospels. But they just heard the parable. And although they understood the agricultural component of the parable, yeah, that makes sense. Seeds by the wayside get trampled on by feet. They're not going to grow. Rock, yeah, a little bit, little bit of growth, then dies. Sun comes up, scorches them because there's no root. Get that. Uh, then it goes into weeds. Yep, we hate weeds too. Everybody hates weeds. Weeds kill everything. Good ground, grows. Okay, but what do you mean by all this? We, we, we already know farming. We came to hear you tell us about being set free. We understand the farming analogies. What does it all mean? Well, the disciples, they actually ask what it means. They said, what does this parable mean? That's deep, right? They thought, this is how they ask, what does it mean? What does it mean? They're like, we... we we observe all that to be true. All that's true. I've known that since I was a kid. Yes, seeds, my parents told me, do not plant seeds over here, they won't grow. Plant them here, they'll die really quick. Plant them here. We understand that. What are you saying? Well, Jesus had said in verse 8, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. He's saying deep down, I want you to understand what I'm saying. Jesus uses this term 15 times. Some in the Gospels, you know, the other place he uses it? Book of Revelation. Gospels, Book of Revelation. He who has ears, let him hear. Because he comes back and he speaks to the churches, doesn't he? Because the churches forget this parable. He who has ears, let him hear. That this parable is speaking of far more than the agriculture and he starts to tell the disciples, if you're taking notes, let's look at the produce, what it all means. It's good for us when we read, if we don't understand something, ask. First place to ask is God. He does put people in your life. He said he's called some to be pastors, teachers, evangelists. He actually has called people to help teach. I have men that I call. You guys know I love to call Sam Nadler for questions. I have uh, Pastor Troy up in Lynchburg. I have other pastors that I, hey, I've been really studying over there. Here's what I think I'm seeing. Guys that have written over the years, Matthew Henry and uh, Pastor Chuck, for years. He went through the Bible, I don't know, it's like 30-some times or, you know, just all the way through. So there's a wealth of cloud of witnesses of teachers, but ultimately our teacher is Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we want to ask, Lord, I'm studying this, I'm laboring over it, I was in my devotions, what does it mean? And I think the more that you study God's word, the more you'll be asking God to give insight, to give better understanding about what he's saying. And I think it's, it's worth noting the apostles, uh, they become apostles later, the disciples, 
They simply say, Lord, teach us. What do these things mean? I've read the parable of the sower many times, and I have to say, I know a lot of what it means, but part of it is still mysterious to me, and it probably will be till we get to heaven. There's a lot of debate. Is Jesus speaking here about one group being believers and all the others being lost? Is it about immature believers? I would say to all that, yes. I would say it has a very multiplied effect. Uh, this knife cuts in a lot of different directions. It's a very, very deep passage of Scripture. We don't have all the time to cover it, but I'm going to cover it in just a couple of minutes of what I believe the most important things that I think the Lord would have us understand about this text. And in James 1, 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You say, I, I still don't understand all this. Keep studying. Keep reading. Keep learning. We could study this passage to the end of time, but there are certain things that are clear as a bell. Jesus wants us in good ground. Amen? That's as clear as can possibly be. What we always want to center ourselves on what we do know. There will people debate, oh, this, this is not about all unbelievers and believers. This is all about believers. And it? Well, we know it's not all about believers because the first ground is clear proof of that. He says these four different uh, types. Uh, by the way, everyone falls into one of these four categories. Everyone falls into one of these four categories. There is no one that falls outside of these categories. Uh, again, you can take a position that, uh, you know, I think that this is really you know, part of these. The last two also include believers, or you can take the position that the last three uh, or the first three are all unbelievers. Uh, I would say this, Jesus gives us other commentary that helps us shed light on his own teaching. And he said in Matthew 7, 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few there be that find it. Remember that Jesus isn't like us. He doesn't exaggerate. When he says few there be that find it, what does he mean? Few there be that find it. And so I look at this text and I lean to the viewpoint that Three of these are not legitimate conversions, and the last one is. I'm not dogmatic on it, because I see plenty of application to the believer, not coming to full maturity and those type of sayings that, that are in the... So I think there's good application to immature believers, but I believe the full weight of the text, I believe the majority of it is saying the true disciple, the true saint, the true one that has the names written in the Lamb's Book of Life is going to be the one grown in good soil. But again, there's application in other areas. Let's look just briefly at these four things because Jesus explains what they mean. I don't have to explain them because Jesus explains them. Again, there's some depth here uh, that we could go for a long time, but let's look at the, the straightforward understanding of what he says. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Whenever the word goes out, you can either believe it Reject it or say, I believe it, but I'll actually apply it later, which is to not believe it, right? We actually look at that third category as believing, but Jesus would say it's not. That's being a hearer rather than a doer of the word. He talks about that a lot. You can hear it, I don't do it, right? 
the police officer will explain the same thing to you. Did you see the speeding sign? Yes, sir, I did. Did you obey it? No, I didn't. Here's your ticket. But I acknowledged it. I told you I read it. Isn't that good enough? I read the, it said 55. I did 85. You know what? You're the first person to acknowledge the sign. So you know what? No ticket for you. I'm, I'm just looking for people that read it. That's all. Not the officer that one of our brothers recently got. But the first of these four, the first of these four categories, the wayside, the wayside. There, Jesus says of these, uh, they fall on the wayside, the devil comes and takes away the word of their heart lest they should believe. These are ones that never, ever, ever, at least at some level, even believe it's true. You've met people like that. They, they're atheist, they're agnostic, they're rabid about another religion or faith, and they refute, they don't believe any of the uh, beliefs of Christ. You know, radical Islam right now, that it's beheading people and things like that, they do not believe for one second those that are, uh, that are bent on saying, we will install this true faith and destroy all the others. They do not believe for a second that Jesus is the Son of God, equal to God. They don't believe in the Trinity. Now, they're not more sinners than anyone else. Jesus, all of us are the same sinners. But there's many people that say, I don't believe. You've probably witnessed to somebody at some point in time that says, I don't believe the Bible's true. Well, you got a major impasse there, don't you? Right? I believe in your Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe it's true. Okay? So the devil has already snatched away the truth. You already, from the get-go, don't even believe God's word. Remember, the seed is what? It's the word. The seed is the word. The seed is the word. If you say, oh, first of all, I least believe the word, remember the next two categories actually believe the word. But the first one does not. If you grew up in communism, if you grew up in uh, some other faith, and someone shares you with Christ, you say, I don't believe that at all. Get out of my face. I don't believe that. Then you're on the wayside. Don't believe it at all. Think it's a fantasy. I've, I've talked to people like this that think that, hey, your born-again Christian stuff is just as goofy as Santa Claus and everything else. They put it in the same category. They're by the wayside. Before they could even have it take even a little bit of root, they reject it out of hand. Then you have the rocks. Jesus said the others. Uh, these are the ones that when they fall, they hear the word and they receive it with joy. Boy, this is good news. Life is already really hard. Jesus has met a lot of people like this because their life was miserable and they received it with joy. But then, life didn't get way better. They didn't all of a sudden get big promotions. They didn't all of a sudden find uh, that all of a sudden they were going to move into the new stratosphere of life. Uh, they still had certain injuries and ailments. Those things didn't go away. Uh, people made fun of them for being a Christian, for believing in Jesus, and all this stuff. Uh, different temptation or trials come their way. They say, enough of this. I was, ha I was better off as an unsaved person. I'm heading back. Right? People have gone that route, too. Many people, many people, they used to go to church, but then they had a death in the family, they're bitter at God, and they want nothing to do with it anymore. If God was true, then he wouldn't let my child die. 
or this or something that's happened in their life. And I'm not minimizing those things. Those things have happened in our family. Those things have probably happened in your family. But that doesn't change my belief that God is still on the throne and Jesus is still my Lord and Savior. Peter said, why would we go away from you? You have the words to eternal life. Where are you going to go? Right? Where, where else could you possibly go to find rest and peace? But many bail because the world and all the difficulty, in their mind, that proves that God is really not for them. So therefore, this isn't worth it. I was better off when I was on my own. Jesus said, those are the rocks. And it could be all kinds of things. It could be persecution for the word's sake, all of these different things. Then the, the one that I think is most, boy, it is, it is the biggest problem area for the American church. And this is the last of the three that, um, that fall away. Now, these are the ones among thorns, who where they have heard go out and are choked with what? Cares, riches, and the pleasures of life. It wasn't difficulty. It wasn't that they didn't believe the message. They wanted the good life. They wanted all that the world had to offer. Paul said about Demas, he said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present what? World. Paul said he was in love with the world. He wasn't in love with Jesus. He was in love with the world. We have to be careful because even in the church, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 29, to be careful because there's wheat and tares growing side by side. Even in any church, there will be unsaved people uh, that are still in love with the world. Uh, they've never really fallen in love with Jesus. They've never surrendered their lives and hearts to Jesus. They look like wheat on, a, on the outside. Matter of fact, the type of tares Jesus was talking about, they look identical to wheat until harvest time. And then it's proof. It's not actual wheat heads that come out. They look a lot the same, and you can't tell. And he said, you have to be careful. Don't rip up uh, the good uh, with the bad. Try and do all that God can do to have them all be wheat, and that's a work of the Lord. But James says in James 4.4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. This is the big problem in most people's life is the attraction to all that the world has to offer. Jesus says, I give life, I give peace, I give rest. And the world says, no, no, we give you life, we give you peace, we give you status, we give you rest, we give you fun, we give you pleasure. And Jesus says, if you go that way, you make yourself an enemy of God. That's still in your Bibles, folks, right? It's still there. I know it's not popular preaching. I know it's not said a lot, but it's still in the scriptures, A.W. Tozer. Listen to this, two different quotes from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer is kind of like, I feel like me. I could look at this text and say, I can see application to the believer, and I can see application that there's only one group of believer here, and that's the good soil. But listen, two different quotes from A.W. Tozer, and you can see why God wants the Spirit to do the conviction to each individual heart. This is what A.W. first quote from him. In every Christian's heart, there's a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps that is the, at the bottom of the backsliding worldliness among gospel believers today. This was in the early 1900s. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, 
No dethronement, no dying. We remain king with the little kingdom of Mansuel and wear a tinsel crown with the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Now, I meet a lot of Christians, if the truth be told, they would say, I'm okay with that. Am I still going to heaven? I'm okay with being a sterile, tinsel crown-wearing Christian. Do I still get in? And if, and if someone knew the fact and said, yes, Jesus told me you're still in, they'd say... That's all I needed to know. That's all I needed to know. I won't change a thing. Listen to this other quote from A.W. Tozer. It is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, yet they have not been saved. Same day W. Tozer. Just depending on which Sunday he preached, right? Because the word speaks to both. It speaks to really carnal Christians, and it speaks to people that are self-deceived. Who knows which is which? Jesus alone. But he gives the parable and saying, if you have ears to hear, why would you play with the other three categories is what I hear from Jesus. He's like, why would you even fool around with the other three categories? Why? You know, why if I knew that something was 90% chance of death, would I say, I'm okay with that? D. James Kennedy, the late D. James Kennedy, said the vast majority of people are members of the church in America that they are not Christians. I say that without the slightest contradiction. I base it on empirical evidence of 24 years of examining thousands of people. D. James Kennedy went to be home with the Lord, I don't know how, 10 years ago or so. How about this quote from Spurgeon? Called the Prince of Priests. Have you no desire or have you no wish for others to be saved? You are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Hey, I didn't say it. Spurgeon said it. But it's true. I mean, imagine if you were a parent and say, I, you know, I love my kids. I have no desire to change their diapers or do anything for them whatsoever, but I love them. Matter of fact, I don't do any of it. I tell them, do it yourself. Infant, you're costing me sleep and everything else. You do it yourself. But I sure love them. Right? I mean, it's a dichotomy. So Jesus said, if, you, if you're born of me, you will want others to be saved. And that's one of the reasons. But you were born in good soil. You want to put others in good soil. And that's... But yet, there's all these other things that pull on us to say, yeah, but I'd rather go do this. I'd rather spend my time doing that. And it's not just... It's not just, uh, you know, that we have believers that are focused on the world and are living for the flesh and living for all the things that are out there, uh, but it's other things too. I had a pastor friend, another Calvary chapter, chapel pastor friend, he did a Q&A on a Sunday morning, always dangerous, uh, but he did a Q&A on a Sunday morning and uh, uh, he had a college-age kid ask a question. He said, why are so many Christians so mean to other Christians? He was newly saved at a state university. And if one thing you notice, you'd be, why are so many Christians so mean to other Christians? By the way, Jesus said, this is how men, all men will know that you're truly my disciple, that you what? Love one another. This lukewarm, loving the world, gossiping about other Christians, stabbing each other in the back, lusting after money, lusting after desire. Jesus said, this is not new. This chokes out many, 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 many people. They actually become exactly the way they used to be. They fall away and they go back and they live just like your other co-workers. But 
They did say a prayer one time, and it was at an altar call in 1972. Right? I had three, di- three things this week. Uh, Will Mancini, he works with church leaders. He tweeted out this week, 50 to 75 churches every week are closing their doors. Todd Atkins works with churches around the country. He said this week, this week, all these were this week, as many as 100,000 churches in America are showing signs of decline and headed towards death. Tom Rayner, Southern Baptist, writes uh, for a lot of things. He said, at any given time, this week, all three this week, this week, all three, Tom Rayner, at any given time, as many as 50,000 congregations are searching for a pastor. We, something's wrong. Now, by the way, these things don't scare me because here's what Jesus said. This is what I like. Here's another one. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He's got our back. But why is this happening? The number one autopsy for churches is when they stop caring about the lost, they die. When they stop visiting prisons, when they stop doing outreaches, when they stop witnessing to their coworkers, when they stop inviting people to church, they no longer care. And that's when they become so preoccupied with themselves they slice and dice other Christians over doctrinal things. They email and say, so-and-so is a jerk and stuff like that, and they don't care about the lost anymore, and then they care about promotions, and they want you know, more money and all these things. And, and yet, if we were doing the things that Jesus asked us to do, we stay in good soil. Amen? He said, Jesus, Revelation chapter 3, verses 15, 7, 17, and also 19, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need of nothing. This is many in the American church. We've prospered. And do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But he goes on to say in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. See, I came to Christ Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, 1995, on a message in, uh, was it June? Message in June, I came to Christ when that text was read. I was there on a day that was a message to lukewarm Christians, about 3,000 people there, and I realized that I thought I was in the Lord because of something I did years earlier, but Jesus said, not according to the evidence. And I surrendered my life to Christ. Because that message that day uh, was preached from Revelation chapter 3 on the lukewarm church. And uh, when you look at verse 14, those that are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures, and they bring no fruit to maturity. Yes, there's application there to the immature believer. But there's also application there to the false convert. And I don't know in every church which is which but the Lord Jesus does. And if he pricks your heart as to which one, in either case, the response is the same. If you're saved, repent and do the first work. If you're unsaved, repent and be saved. Because the last one is the only ground that he wants all of us to be on. Let's look at the last verse, 15. But the ones that fell on good ground, those who having heard the word with a noble and a good heart. By the way, none of us are noble or good. The real emphasis here is a humble heart. None of us are noble or good by nature. None of us are born from really good stock, as my great-grandmother likes to say. 
Well, now she's my grandmother. She's 95. I keep, she's not my great. She I say we're from good stock. We're not, I had to, we're not from good stock. Maybe genetically, although I would dispute that as well. But a humble heart. God says he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud that won't hear his voice. Good ground. The other gospels say, and, and, and the produce is some 30, some 60. This is why I believe this is the one category that's the true believer. Because the real comparison here, Jesus gives us a contrast. Inside the church, some believers will produce 30, 60, 100. He gives us a gradient within this last category that there are going to be the D.L. Moody's, which I am a, I'm a peon compared to. And the Chuck Smiths. And the Martin Luthers, right? There's going to be the great, the great men of faith that God has used. And great women of faith, too. There's going to be the Marys, right? There's going to be the Lydias that will be remembered. It's going to be the widow with the might. But they're also, and the fruit will be different. Some of you, by the way, Jesus said 30, 60, 100. Uh, I believe that if you look at the other parables of the talent and stuff, some of you will produce 10 bushels. Some will produce 15. Some will produce 2,000, whatever it is, Billy Graham or all these. But we're all going to produce fruit. If there's no fruit at all, Jesus has something to say about that too. He says the tree with no fruit is bundled with the sticks and cast where? Into the fire. That's what he says. But the good ground is going to bear fruit. It won't all be the same, and it doesn't all take the same amount of time. You know, uh, when you go to an orchard, you will see some trees have a little bit of fruit. Some have a lot of fruit, but they're going to bear fruit. Psalm 92, 14 says, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. The real saints of God will persevere through. He says, with patience here, with patience, they will wait on the Lord. They'll continue to move forward. Jesus said in John 15, 8 and 16, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask in my Father, in my name, he may give it to you. The fruit of the Spirit. Are you bearing the fruit of Jesus in your life? Are we drawing near to him? Why don't you stand as we close?